You're listening to El Yoshi Idiot Podcast with Yoshi Obayashi. Thanks for listening to your episode, Yoshi Den. I'm in K-Town, and I'm here with Tom, Peter. Tom, Tom, do you prefer Tom A. Peter, or? You know, I, either is fine. I put the A in my byline because there's a business author named Tom, Tom Peter. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, so I did it to try to avoid confusion. <clears throat> and you're, you're here because um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by your work, and I was uh, lucky enough to have our mutual friend, uh, Alex Meyer, and uh, she told me such a wonderful things about you. And I met her in Afghanistan, and uh, I'm, I'm glad it worked out. Because there was a period I think we were going back and forth in email, trying to figure out when you're going to be um, coming back to LA and yeah, back and yeah, forth. Yeah, no. it's a fun. I'm glad this finally happened. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by you. You're a journalist by training. You lived in Middle East for a long time, and uh, you have some amazing stories. But you moved to L.A. because you're pursuing um, show business stuff as well, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that peripherally. I mean, my, mm. I, I, uh, I'd been in the Middle East and Afghanistan for, for seven years, and uh, I just wanted to have a break. And, and so what, what brought me back here tentatively, or, or I guess the main reason I'm back now, is uh, I got funding to do reporting on border security and immigration for a year. Okay. And uh, so that, this, this is a great place to be based. You can get anywhere from the southwest and... Uh, and, and you know, down in, uh, tomorrow, I'll be in San Diego doing stuff. But then, yeah, also you know, interested in um, you know trying to trying to find some some new markets, maybe in uh, show business and in media as well. Okay, I'll make sure make, make sure the mic is closer. Oh, sure, Sorry sure. Old equipment. So let's. Um, so what, what did you what did you grow up? Let's get your background first. Sure, sure, yeah. So I grew up in Orange County, just south of here. Oh, I keep forgetting that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I actually I, I left right after high school. And then went to, to college in Chicago and then um, pretty much was in the Middle East, uh, right? Well, I did spend a year in the Middle East during college and then right after college went back to the Middle East and to Iraq and um, yeah, I've been kind of bouncing around all, all over since then. I was in Boston for about a year and a half in the middle of that, but uh, Middle East is mostly where I've been up until October. So when you growing up in Orange County, is your, is your parents journalists or...? No, my mom was actually, uh, she, she was a horse trainer. Uh, so my job in high school, I, I cleaned horse stalls. Um, and, uh, you know, at the, bar, at the barn where my mom worked. And uh, my dad lived in Pittsburgh, and he was an investment banker. So they, they uh, my dad traveled a little bit, but uh, we went on like a family cruise sure. one summer uh, in, in the Mediterranean. That was the most traveling I had done. Um, and my mom... Uh, she actually didn't leave the country until uh, she came to visit me when I was living overseas. So, it was, Wait, what did she visit you in overseas? Where she she came to visit me in, when I lived. I used to be based for a period. I was based in. Don't Jordan. tell me Syria. No, no, she did. I was trying to get her to come to Afghanistan, and she would have. She would have come. She would have come, but it was um, you know the timing and then the finances didn't work out. But she would have come to visit me there if she could have. I think out of your parents, I would say. Your mom might have more to offer because those Arabs in Saudi Arabia, they love horses, man. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, pedigree, those thoroughbred. I mean, it's always either wealthy Europeans, Japanese racers, or Saudi Arabians. And like, they, they're very savvy. And yeah. um, I, I, I have, my friend have a really nice seat right behind the governor of New York in Belmont. And, and a couple of times I went, you, you well, to say wealthy Saudi Arabian sounds redundant, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like they were there, and like yeah. there are major players in that business, you know. Yeah, we well, when she came to visit in Jordan, we actually tried to go to one of uh, King Abdullah's barns. It didn't. It ended up not working out, but we yeah, we were excited about the idea. How, how much did she like Jordan? Is she that, loved it. She loved Jordan, and and um, we went over to Egypt too. This was back in '09, so before any of those the, kind of the uprising had started and subsequent problems. But yeah, I mean, so it was it was nice. She loved that, and then you know, just before I came back, she came. I was based in Turkey, going in and out of Syria, so she came to see me in Turkey. We went around Turkey and then went to Greece. So she she's loving it. Loves so, the travel. So prior to that trip, she hasn't really gone overseas. No, yeah, her first 
Her first time overseas was was showing up in Jordan to visit me. Wow, that's pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah, you know, most white, at least most white Americans, they tend to go like maybe Canada or <laughs> England. Those are safe. France, Paris, France, Amsterdam, maybe. Yeah, she. It was nice. I mean, it was like you know. She, I think I was kind of like her personal tour guide. You know, I speak Arabic. I picked her up in at the airport, and I'd rented a car for when she was there. And so I got to take her all around and kind of remove the stressors. There's a lot of times where we'd be doing things, and I'd be arguing and like haggling with, mm-hmm. with people, and she was just enjoying it. You know, snapping pictures, and then I'd come back, and you know, she had no idea that I was. You know, since these, the arguments would be happening in Arabic, she had no idea that I was having like these massive fights with people she just thought it was great her son was speaking arabic and and, and you know I'm, I'm obviously asian but looking you looking at you it's like a white person but what what's your background if you have to do a breakdown like I, i'm like as white as they come um you know this I actually on my dad I'm, well I'm, on my dad's side the so i'm actually i guess i get i'm so white that my full name is actually thomas armistead peter the fourth um, and if you go back the history of that name, yeah. the, the original Thomas Peter, um, not not the one that started this cycle that we're on now, but the one who started, I guess, the couple of great grandfathers ago. Uh, there was a guy. He came over. He was the son of a Scottish tobacco merchant. Okay. Uh, and then he ended up marrying uh, Martha Washington's granddaughter because when she was married to George Washington, what? that was her second marriage. Yeah, she was a widow when when Washington married her. So he married uh, Martha Washington's granddaughter from a first marriage, and then they inherited a bunch of money. So if you go to uh, when, that, when D- Washington died, yeah. so if you go to D.C. in Georgetown, there's a famous uh, a museum called the Tudor Place, uh, and this was built by uh, the original Thomas Peter, who, uh, yeah, it's in, in Georgetown now. I, I went there once, and uh, I told him, you know, my grandmother had always said you got to go there, and I said okay, and so I went, and uh, and she said tell him who you are, and I said. That's ridiculous grandma they're not going to know who i am but i went and told them and sure enough like they took me around and they uh they would give me these tours they gave me a private tour and when they would stop at some points they'd be like you know you really you just have a fine pedigree so it's like it was a champion show dog or something well that's that's pretty amazing um i didn't expect that because when you when you whenever people say they're from orange county and i oh probably new new family or something you know <laughs> wow that's yeah. That's, that's a nice thing to tell your kids when, when yeah. you have they're having kids and yeah we, and we actually on my mom's side we go back to uh we're a bunch of sea merchants from well in new england so was, i we're, we came to orange county late um you know we it was big east coast both my family my mom and my dad's side they, they were big east coast families sure and then, uh when my mom got divorced she moved to to orange county do something new and her her brothers had moved here to start a software business so it's probably safe to say uh, throughout beginning of time, going back to your ancestor, you're the, probably the first person to learn to speak Arabic in your family, right? <laughs> that, that's true. That's true, yeah. Because that's, that's not the one people pick to learn the foreign language. Yeah, I, I never thought of that. I mean, there, I, I might be the first person to ever uh, go to the Middle East in my family, um, going back generations. Maybe some of the merchants, but I don't think they were, I don't think they were involved in trade in that area. They were doing like whaling and, you know, kind of trade with like the, the Caribbean and stuff. I see. So, yeah. So when you graduated from high school, you weren't thinking journalism yet. Yeah. I mean, I'd done like I'd written this like humor column in our school newspaper. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, you know, it wasn't like journalism. It was just me writing like these snarky things about like the school administration like you do when you're 16. But, yeah, I hadn't thought of, of journalism. And and why did you go to Northwestern? We were a very prestigious school in in Illinois. Oh, thank you. No, it just uh, I got accepted there, and I wanted to get out of Southern California. You know, at the time, I really I didn't like it. I thought everyone was shallow and things that you think when you're 16 and grow up in Orange County. Um, and, and so, you know, I wanted to uh, wanted to do something new. So uh, Northwestern seemed like a good place to go, and yeah, just kind of ended up there. Do you remember hearing about Obama back then? I'm sure he was like a congressman yeah. or something. Yeah, he got, um, so let's see, he got uh, elected as senator in during my senior year of college. Oh my God, all right. Yeah, yeah, so I remember I remember, uh, I remember that. People were real excited. And, uh, you know, a few people were talking about how they, they I remember one guy, it was actually my Arabic class, there was one guy who was saying like, 
he felt like he was already just being groomed for president. Someone he was complaining about that. That he, he didn't really? feel like he was gonna. Yeah, yeah. He felt he didn't feel like he was gonna be a good senator because he was just he already had his eye on the Oval Office. So, but yeah, I, yeah. So I guess I, at the time I remember thinking, God, that seems a little, little premature. petty. Yeah, premature to say that. Like, well, whoever said it was right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so he was there. And I had another friend actually, a Chicago native. He. Um, He's now an attorney, and uh, he was he was going to get an internship, and he, you know this is some some years ago, and uh, he he ended up going to some other random local Chicago politician, only because when he made the decision, uh, this he was on one side of the street was this local Chicago politician, and on the sure. other side was the uh, was Barack Obama's office when he was still in the state state Senate or Congress, whatever he was in the state uh, government. And so he could have gone and gotten in on the ground floor with Obama, but, but missed out. So I never understood the Chicago politics, that term alderman, or what is it? Uh, uh, I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's also, it always sounded shitty, but some kind of like local district leader. Some, and, yeah, and it's, it's almost like something you'd find in Kabul. Like there's an alderman. Yeah. 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 And Chicago, and of course, way, going back way back in New York City with Tammany Hall, you know, all this corruption <laughs> yeah, and stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, what, what, what did that the going to school in Chicago did it prepare you for the corruption in in Afghanistan or it's just a different kind of corruption? Well, you know, I I, I was kind of removed from it. I mean, as a student, I oh, was that's true. Mm-hmm. you know I was just I was doing what students do and well, so yeah, I mean it was, but you know, they, it got me excited for it. I got a taste of it a little bit. You know, being in Chicago, I took a class in Chicago urban literature where we talked all about Chicago politics. And that was the most involved we got. And that, I did get excited about that then, you know, kind of corruption and those sorts of things. Wait, wait. Uh, I know we were talking about Mike Royko during um, dinner time, but there's also another writer, the friend of Mike Royko, wrote a lot about common men and about work. Studs Turk. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was fantastic. I love that guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say more so than... Uh, than like Chicago politics or anything. Those guys, I mean, we, we read a lot of their stuff in, in that urban literature class. And then uh, they come up in other classes just because you're in Chicago. And, you know, I guess Northwestern likes to connect it to the city. So, yeah, I mean, th- those guys got me really excited about it. Um, I, the last episode that I did for David Cho's podcast, DVD essay, mm-hmm. they had John Cusack on the show. And uh, I didn't realize until <laughs> many weeks later they hated me for asking questions, you know, but I just had a question about Chicago and, and he worked with uh, Stuck Turk in one of the movie. And um, it's it's really interesting. He, he was very fond of Stuck Turk. He, he really was institution in Chicago, you know, when it comes to talking about the Cubs or the, the you know, corruption and history of Chicago and how much he loved that city. And yeah, it, it was wonderful conversation. I don't know if, people really care about that sort of thing. I do. I, I, I love hearing stories about guys like Stat Turco. And uh, what a, what an amazing city Chicago is. I mean... Yeah, it's really great. I mean, and those guys, they're just from a, a different generation. You, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to go back and read their, their stuff. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see what they have to say about what's going on today. But yeah, they were alive? Yeah, 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 they're still around. But yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like we, you know, we don't have... You know, I don't know. I guess everyone always says this, you know, that we don't have people like they used to. But, you know, we I, I feel like we could use some more salty, salty folks like those two. So I'm sure they had an influence on you. You went to Northwestern. When did you realize, like, maybe this is something that I want to pursue? Well, I mean, for me, really, what, what happened was, uh, you know, I studied in, in Cairo mm-hmm. when I was, uh, you know, for my junior year of college. So they have one of those... Like a study abroad, yeah. Yeah. Did you did you just do for the summer or for a whole year? For a whole year, actually, a whole uh. year in the summer. Um, and during, I, you know, I it, so I was in Cairo at the American University. But what what really made an impression on me, well, I mean, being in Cairo was incredible. But I also this was in two thousand three and four, and uh, we had. Well, a, well, by the way, why why did you pick Arabic in that part of the world? Well, I started college like two days after the 9-11 attacks. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, I, I really wanted to understand, um, you know, the, these people who are involved. And, uh, you know, so I, I got into, you know, starting taking classes on Islam and uh, Middle Eastern politics and sure. history and, and really just kind of trying to kind of figure out. I mean, because, you know, before that, I mean, I, you know, 
I had no idea about the Middle East. In high school, we I remember kind of learning about it, but I just didn't know anything about it at all. Um, even when I started studying, I mean, when I got to Cairo, I if you would have asked me to look at a map and, and pick out places in the Middle East, I couldn't do it. Um, it, just, it really took living there and kind of really sure. getting into it. To, to um, But what did you say to your parents? <laughs> what, what did your parents say to you? Like, I want to study Arabic. I want to go to the Middle East. Like... Well, this is only a couple years after 9-11, right? I mean, I think they kind of liked it, uh, in a sense. I mean, Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that, well, I know that they were nervous to some degree. Uh, but I, I think they were also... remember what happened to Daniel Pearl. Well, this is true. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, I was, still, I was just going on a college-sponsored trip. Mm. Um, and, and I think they were kind of proud to have a son that was getting involved in, sure. in, in these events. But, you know, I mean, I think what really gave them the... Their first panic was when I went to, um, you know, we had the six week winter break and when I was in Cairo. And so I decided I was going to go to Iraq. Um, so I'd figured out to, from talking to people that you could just like go get in a taxi and just go. And this is like nine months after the invasion when I'm making this decision. Wait, so how, I, I think you told me, did you fly from Cairo to Amman, Jordan? Mm -hmm. Do you have to get a visa to do that? Actually, uh, yeah, you, you get a visa in the airport. That's easy. Okay. The, like the logistics of it were, were not difficult. Um, you know, you kind of think that there should be like some sort of, some sort of bureaucrat or someone mm. in the food chain. It's like you know, you're a, you're a 21 year old kid like with no sponsorship that's trying to go to Iraq. Like someone, someone should stop you. Right. Uh, but I don't know, pretty easy to do, um, for better or worse. Um, yeah. So so I, you know, I went over there, and. Um, you know, I had found the Institute for War and Peace reporting said that if I showed up, I, I could volunteer at their office in Baghdad, so I'd have something to do. So you 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 fly from Cairo to Amman, Jordan, and you just ta taxi, and that's it. Yeah, I got in a taxi. There was there was like this guy. Who, you don't even have to convince them; they don't care. No, oh, yeah, as long as you agree on the fare. That's that's the only hack. You know, wow. you haggle, and then you get in there, and um, you know, some guy at a hotel helped me uh, find a you know. A taxi who who could connect me with a place to stay in Baghdad. And what what was it like driving from there to? Um, sorry to ask these details. I'm oh, just yeah, curious. No. I'm just no, curious. I mean, it was. I mean, you know, that was my first time going to a war zone, and um, you know, I just had no idea what to expect. And was the guy? He wasn't nervous at all. He wasn't nervous. I mean, that was his job. I mean, he just back and forth between Baghdad and and uh, Amman. Wow. Uh, okay. And. You know, it was, I remember when I first, when, when the car started, I'd, I'd kind of been nervous in the buildup. And I guess also I mean, just to kind of contextualize what was happening at that time. Uh, you know, we think of Iraq, you know, like uh, probably how, when it was like in 2006, seven, uh, or, or like the Battle of, of Fallujah and like. Mm -hmm. uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, of 04. Yeah. Um, and, and at this time it was, this was before it had really spiraled. It was kind of this this quiet calm before the storm. People hadn't started getting kidnapped yet. Um, there was fighting, but it wasn't ex wasn't too extreme. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know we were kind of still trying to feel out what was happening. So uh, you know, but I was still nervous going there. So so when I remember there was this moment when, when we pulled we started driving because you start in the middle of the night from Jordan, and I had this moment where I just panicked, where I was like, oh my god, what am I doing? You know, I'm just driving into a war i have no no formal support network and you know i don't know what i'm doing um you know like i almost had like a mini panic attack um but you know then i just kind of thought okay this is i'm doing this and mm -hmm. uh, you know got myself under control and then you know it was it's a long drive i don't remember exactly how long it is but i mean we're talking like i think probably 15 to 20 hours driving driving yeah yeah it's a long long drive Wait, did you, did he take a nap or anything? Yeah, you gotta be. No, I can't be twenty. It's like it's probably like fifteen hours. Still, yeah. you, you guys took some breaks and stuff, right? Yeah, lunch? we stopped a few times, got lunch. You know, they've got these little like roadside places. Yeah, you know, remember I had some eggs. You know, there's like there's this one place actually you stop right before the border. Yeah, and a lot of people, a lot of journalists have been holed up there, and like we stopped for like lunch and stuff, and and it's like there's actually like a brothel there too. This famous little brothel uh, in Jordan, yeah, in Jordan, right on the border with Iraq, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't go to this brothel, but uh, yeah, the, multiple people told me it was there, and um, you know, so they, I, I think I, I'm sure there's, I don't know who, but 
I, I would not be surprised to find out that there's some journalists or others who've, who've partaken. Sure. And, you know, it used to be a, a, a way station. So. And 75 sounds bargain to me. Yeah, it was supposed to be 150, but this hotel owner in, in Jordan helped talk it down for a private car. Yeah. Sounds good. So, so what, what does it look like? Because Jordan's a nice country. So when you start getting into Iraq, does it, the roads start looking shittier? And Well, you know, keep in mind, Iraq, like it used to be a really nice country. I mean, the sanctions killed it. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's got the two rivers and uh, it has Tigris a, and Euphrates. Yeah. Over yeah. Yeah. And a lot of agriculture. I mean, you know, if if there hadn't been war, you know, the Iran-Iraq war, then the first Gulf War with us and then then the sanctions and then this the most recent one. one yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, Iraq would be like Dubai and, and the UAE on steroids because it, not only does it have oil and, and these kind of petrol mineral resources. Well-educated citizens, yeah. And, yeah, and it also has agriculture. Mm-hmm. And like, a, it, I mean, it, it, a huge population. So it's really sad what's happened to Iraq. But once you come in, I mean, you know, I remember the, the first sign that, that things were really different was that the road had been bombed out in a few places. <laughs> yeah. So you had to like kind of go out through the dirt around and then, but you know, I, I, when I got into Baghdad, I remember thinking like, oh man, you know, this is it, you know, I'm, I'm in it now. And I remember thinking that I was going to like see like militants like driving around with like, you know, uh, PK machine gun like on the you know mounted like Fallujah on, right yeah, I mean, yeah yeah like so, or or like I was gonna like wander into a street battle or something <laughs> but then I remember, you know one of the first things I remember seeing when we got into Baghdad was like someone was coming to the door selling Kleenexes yeah and, you know it's like being going into Tijuana or something <laughs> you know the kids selling you things and uh, you know so I, it was it was interesting I mean I, after having spent a number of years in different war zones I mean it's one of the things that uh, has really been impressed upon me is that normalcy will will always be there. Uh, you know, so many people just just want to live normal lives. I've been to Afghanistan. Um, could you explain? I mean, if you have to give like a quick advice to somebody planning to go places like that, sure. Do you have any advices for them? Uh, my first piece of advice would really be: don't go unless you really need to. Okay. Um, you know, with that, that's my mistake. <laughs> well, well, you know, even then, Kabul, I think you could. I mean, at this point, I wouldn't advise it just yeah. before with all the problems we're having before the elections. But when you win, I, I think it's okay. Yeah, you know, I was going to have my mom come and visit. Um, so, uh, because we're expecting election in a couple of weeks, and boy, it it, it looks yeah, it looks bad. Rough. Yeah, I mean, it's completely changed. I mean, all these these places where foreigners hang out are getting shot up, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you wanted to go, my, my advice would be that you should. I think what you did it well in the sense that you knew someone who lived there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't recommend going to these places unless you know someone. Absolutely. Or if you have, I mean, at this point, I feel like I, I've spent, you know, almost a decade working in various uh, war zones. Um, and so I, I feel fairly comfortable in my ability to show up into a place and, and kind of navigate it. But even then, I mean, you know, I, I would still, there's... I would still rely on like having a local fixer or, sure. or someone to help me. Um, so yeah, basically, I would say there's almost anywhere is accessible, but you just need to know someone when you go there, um, someone who can help you and show you around. Whether that's an expat who's been there for a while or preferably a local, uh, you can go just about anywhere if you uh, have the right people helping you. Yeah, I, I don't know why I wasn't thinking, but uh, I. I talked to Dexter Falcons like May of 2012 and it was a night the Paley Center had honoring Tom Friston and I saw him after our party and he's just say you know that's just not a place you should go for vacation because I think he kind of laughed but he thought it was crazy even though he go there because he writes it's necessary sure. for him to go but I went maybe I should have been more I should have been paying attention, but I don't know. The whole idea sound is so exciting. I'm not a journalist, so uh, Rick Steves, who writes travel. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I know he, Rick Steves. Yeah, yeah. He interviewed some guy, and he said there's certain people with problems, like broken people. Oh, yeah. Love going to places like that because 
I don't know, maybe excitement or something like that. But I have to tell you, the two times I went, it was exciting. The people that I met was wonderful, both foreigners and Afghans. Sure. They were just, the hospitality by Middle Eastern people, unbelievable. It put people in this country, in the South, shame, you know, because they're famous oh, for yeah. that. But yeah. people are just nice. And it's really strange when you watch uh, media where you see these hardcore Muslim groups burning u.s flags and things like that and that's all most americans see but when you go i've been to turkey united arab emirates sure and afghanistan people can be nicer they're just very very sweet group of people and i never had a problem with them yeah it's i mean you, you know i think so so often when you go to these places people are just excited to see you um you know it, particularly if it's a place that had a history uh, with tourism that now sure. can't get them they're thrilled usually to see to see you and and, and they love talking to outsiders because many of these people can't travel so um you know and, and I, I think one of the things that's, that's really different is that the, the, these regions are so homogenous um that you really stand out if you're not from there you know it's not like you know being here in you know koreatown where it's actually i think like a majority latino um and then there's the, the koreans and other yeah. asians white people um and so you know if you're different race it doesn't what does that even mean here whereas if you go to one of these other places you're you know clearly not from there it's fascinating because sure. they don't see it there's no diversity why am i forgetting that ethnic group in afghan that looks like me um oh the the hazaras Hazar, yes yeah yeah you look like a hazara we yeah. put a good uh bakul on you and they're they're, you know. they're very very nice and i i i went to the second day of a premiere of afghan premier league and i was walking behind our friend Sarah Jean and a bunch of other people, but I was the last guy to go in. And I think because I kept my mouth shut, they thought it was Hazaras and stopped me. And Sarah Jean said, no, 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 he's, <laughs> he's with us. So that was kind of cool. Like I could, I could fool a couple of them as long as I kept my mouth shut and dress down yeah. like yeah. local. Well, you know, the, the other problem that I think Asians have, that I have a few Asian friends throughout the region. And there's one guy I was friends with in Cairo and Oh man, I I just just felt horrible from him. There, whenever we were walking, people would jump in front of him and do like a karate move and chant, oh, yeah. like Jackie Chan and you know all this stuff. So yeah, they, they, I guess also because there's no diversity, they're still pretty racist in, in a lot of ways. But I I don't I don't I I uh, that that kind of stuff doesn't bother me. It's kind of funny. Yeah. But my friends went to Africa and uh, every other word is like Bruce Lee and Jackie. But it doesn't bother me because you know what. They're just so amazed that you're there, yeah. And they don't know any better. And I know it's not malicious, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big distinction is that so much of that racism isn't malicious. It's not like what you find in the deep south in America, yeah. where they should know better. Yeah, yeah, they should know better. And it's like uh, it's almost there's just a deep hatred that comes from some of the racism. There's, this is just like it's like they're just so excited to see something, and uh, you know. So I, I, yeah, like you say, I think it's a bit harmless. And and we also know Kimberly Motley, attorney sure. in Afghanistan, but. Her husband was telling me like he was really popular in Afghanistan because they they see white people there, but it's very rare for them to see black people. You know, it oh was just, yeah, they were just like they follow him. They follow people in uh, they follow black people in America for different reasons, <laughs> but in Afghanistan they were just really fascinated. Like they were just so curious, you know. And uh, yeah, and bla you know, black people they they really have it rough when they travel overseas in these places. You know, I think that they they. A lot of the, the discrimination that they face is, uh, I mean, I would say maybe not, not so harmless in, in those places. Um, you know, I have a friend actually who's in the State Department and they're looking to adopt and they're, uh, they're thinking about getting a, an African child because mm -hmm. they, they do a lot of work in Africa. But they were saying, you know, if we get posted in other places in the world, there's just so much racism that we can't, it would just be too much to have a, a, a black kid when we're traveling. So, yeah, it's still really rough for, for uh, Africans and black people overseas. And 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 it's it's also fun when you meet black people in Europe because they're they're really different from the blacks in in North America and just like black people in Africa, you know. I mean, they might look alike, but they're different. The, the, the mannerism, oh, yeah. You know, the I, black people I mean, Sweden is funny because they speak four languages. <laughs> you know, like I mean, they have like a Swedish names and stuff, you know, and. Well, I, I always enjoy these like these divides that come between different groups. And yeah. one of my favorites is between like, you know, African Americans and like African Africans. Yeah. Where like I, they hate each other. They, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, you think like they should be friends or something, but yeah, like they oh man. Like the the you know, I've heard Africans like just say 
stuff where if you were to just you know like write a transcript of it you'd think it was like a former like you know uh, someone who descended from plantation owners in the south or something just saying hateful things yeah it's crazy well you must you must um well okay I, i will talk afghanistan later later but so you you just went to Baghdad for six weeks for vacation? Yeah, yeah, so I was like you. <laughs> yeah, going to Afghanistan. But I mean, it was. Did it you was, tell your parents about it? Yeah, I mean, that was. Uh, oh, God, that was, <laughs> that was. They were really worried. I mean, my mom. I, well, God, I still feel bad about this. You know, I, uh, I told my mom and, and kind of. And she was, she was involved in, in the build up to it. And this was like, you know, I, I think that Skype had not yet been invented when this happened. Right. Um, so it's still really difficult to like have conversations. Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of talking over email. There was like some kind of there's some kind of service that they used to exist where it was it was meant for deaf people, but anyone could use it. Yeah, where you would like type on Messenger, and then someone would read the transcript, and they'd be on the phone with someone in the U.S. and they would like read the transcript, and then oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I'd use that sometimes to talk to my mom because it was faster, and she didn't like Messenger and stuff. So um, I, I was talking to her on that and over email about the trip, and you know she was kind of okay and signing off on it. And then, like the day before I was leaving, I suddenly remembered that I hadn't told my dad. Uh, and so I, I got like this phone card that was like for ten minutes, and I called him. And I was like, you know, how's it going? Get through the pleasantries. And I was like, by the way, I'm going to Iraq tomorrow. And uh, what did he say? He was shocked, and then then he kind of came to terms with it. Yeah. And then he, uh, it also came yeah. out that in that same conversation, it was a crazy conversation because he. Uh, he tells me that, you know, I tell him I'm going to Iraq and he and then he says, okay, kind of makes peace. And he says, just don't tell your stepmother. And I said, okay, that's fine. And he said, yeah, we're, we're in the process of getting a divorce. Um, and they, they were going through an ugly divorce as well. And uh, then oh. I, so I just found out about that. So, I, I you know, this is, it was a pretty intense conversation, you know, all these reveals. But <laughs> yeah, so then I went off. Let me guess, you'd rather be in Baghdad than being where he's at and, and deal with that divorce, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was it was an ugly divorce. But yeah, so I mean, I went and, and my parents were supportive. And, um, you know, it, it was a crazy time. I mean, it, it was, I, I'm incredibly lucky. I mean, I think they always say that, that people who work in conflict zones, the ones who get killed tend to be, Kind of young people who are, are new and it's their first time, or sure. or senior people who've been at it so long that they've they've become complacent. Um, and, and so yeah, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky. I mean, I, I did some really stupid things. Like I ended up getting um, arrested and you know shot at and then arrested um, and put in jail for three days. And uh, well, what, what, what's the deal with that? What happened? <laughs> and this is in Baghdad, right? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, so I. At the time, I had this kind of vague conception that oh, maybe I'll be a journalist. And I met this guy who was like this British graffiti artist, and he was like, uh, "I was like, you know, that sounds like a news story." He, you know, just come to Iraq to to do graffiti, and I was like, "Well, I'll write a story about this guy." So he, you know, what, I, what's his name? Well, his his uh, his tag handle yeah. was uh, Arrowfish. He's not like anything, you know. I don't. He's pretty minor, but you know, nice guy. But he decided to go to Baghdad to do graffiti work? Yeah, yeah. He was just at a bus station in Jordan. And he saw that, that you know, he was going to go to, to Palestine. And he saw that the, the on the bus stop, there was a, a one to Baghdad. And he got up to the ticket line. And he's like, hey, does does that bus still go to Baghdad? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, he, he bought a ticket and just showed up in Baghdad. Wow. I mean, it's like you were saying that, you know, you meet all these oddballs in these places. And, uh, and I love it. Yeah, I love it. I, I mean, I met the weirdest, weirdest people over there. The craziest people, yeah. Yeah, so there's like this guy, the graffiti artist, and like this little hotel I was staying at, there was a bunch of human shields that had come. And, and they, you know, the human shields, their idea was they were going to come before the war, like during the American bombing campaign to like, you know, protect people and stuff. Um, but, you know, the time I was there, um, you know, the bombing campaign had ended and it was impossible to be a human shield there anymore. You know, you don't know what to stand in front of. But these people showed up like nine months too late. And then so they were like, I guess their contribution was to just at that point to just like smoke a bunch of hash and like talk about how poor they were. There were some kids, uh, there's some Australian women who showed up and started an orphanage. Um, and they did this without having any like experience in child care. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, they just got a bunch of money. And like there, when I was there, I, I went to go visit the orphanage one day. So I wanted to see what this was about. And it was in this like abandoned house they'd somehow gotten. And uh, I go in and, and these kids are like, 
some of them are really nice, but then some of them are like they come up and they're, they're they actually this guy pulls me aside and he's like got this foil and he unfolds it and there's like some pills in it and he's like he's, he's like take a pill you know make you feel good and I was like what what, what kind of orphanage is this yeah. you know these kids are doing drugs and, and you know one of the kids comes by and just slaps me across the face and I'm like my God why I I have no idea they just for sport. And it turns out that this like kind of street gang had had overrun the orphanage because this the the orphanage that they got was in such a dangerous area that they couldn't stay in it at night, so they didn't know what would happen. And um, you know, while they were away, and, and so the street gang comes in, starts taking like the kids' food, their clothing, oh, making God. them sell it on the street. Yeah. And uh, you know, when it finally escalated to this point where like you know they, they have this showdown one day and uh like kids are coming in with pipes and they're it looked like it was going to be this massive brawl but finally they i guess they thankfully for the children they they got they took them to some kind of turkish run orphanage that was actually legit after that but yeah you meet these just crazy people like that that i i, I guess their heart was in the right place but uh unfortunately they didn't have the the, the wits or the resources to do things responsibly so you're 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 a young guy, impressionable. You're still in college, and I mean, you you must have been reading stuff about what's going on in Iraq. Sure, sure. What was the disparity with what you were actually reading and what was actually happening over there? Was it pretty accurate? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to. It was interesting. I, I would say that, you know what I said earlier about just kind of seeing how normal things can yeah. be. Yeah. Um, that that really, uh, I think that's hard to to understand before you go to a war zone, is because you know I mean in, you know I'm in the media I write about these things and sure. the, you know you have to report on what matters which is usually like these massive events of people dying battles gunfights all those things um, and, and you know so you're not going to report on, on on how normal things are it's just it's kind of a non sequitur and doesn't really matter um, the grand scheme of things but uh, when you actually go to these places it, it's uh, you realize that yes, there is a war happening, but so many people just want to have a normal life and go about their day to day business. Um, and, and of course, they're they're being affected in varying to varying degrees by by the war. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just trying to live a normal life in there and being with people who are trying to have a normal life is that was a pretty um, that was not something that I expected, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I, I found it pretty interesting. So you were there for six weeks working for, I'm sorry, you were working for whom again? I was volunteering for the, the, the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. So I was like, um, I was there shining shoes and, you know. That, that, that was a, literally was like your entryway to that journalism field, right? Yeah, now. yeah. Yeah, I, I knew a guy in Cairo who knew someone there. So they're like, you know, you can go there. So I helped with um, kind of editing work is what I was doing with that. But... And you did it for six weeks. Did you make a lot of friends? And it was um, yeah. I mean, overall, it was a good trip. It was a good trip. I mean, yeah. And like the 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 this prison experience was a good thing for mm -hmm. me. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I guess I say a good thing, but I mean, it, it was pretty awful. <laughs> so they caught you graffiti and they put you well, there. no, actually, it was they, they we got it was we went into an area to do this, and uh, it we hadn't done the research about the area. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is this is the kind of thing you do when you don't know anything about being yeah. in a war zone. And uh, what we didn't know is that this area was like where there was a bunch of banks where in the last month there'd been like three or four attempted robberies. Oh, no. And, and when that happens in Baghdad, like at that time, it wasn't like, you know, here in the U.S. where someone walks in and they pull a gun and, you know, say, give me the money. You know, it's like a militia comes and tries to overrun the bank and they accept that like half of the guys are going to die, but the other half are going to make out with, you yeah. know, potentially millions of dollars. Um, so th these people don't mess around when, when they're guarding the banks. So we show up here, here we are, two guys showing up at night, you know, cause we thought, you know, this guy thought he had to do it at night because people get angry if they saw him painting on these bombed out buildings. Um, and so someone, sh you know, shouts when he sees us approaching this building and, uh, we did, you know, there's so much criminality and things happening at this point that. We kind of thought, oh, well, we just don't want to get mixed up with whoever this is. You spoke a little bit of Arabic by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guy was, the other guy I was with didn't, though. And, you know, the guy's like, <laughs> you know, someone kind of shouts from the distance, you know, kind of like, hey, you know, stop or something. And mm -hmm. we just kind of thought, yeah, this is a little sketchy. Can't see who they are. So we turn around and just start to walk back. And, you know, immediately they just start firing at us. Um, and 
It's one of those things. Wait, were they fighting to scare you or were they trying to hit you? Uh, well, I mean, th- I don't think they were good enough shots to have it crack past our head. Yeah. <laughs> like they did. I mean, they were, I think they were shooting to kill. But I mean. Yeah. Like this so that was the first time in your lifetime somebody trying to shoot yeah, you. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like they were shooting in the air. Like, the bullets were cracking past us. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, you know. Well, I'm t- glad you think that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I know. It was terrifying at the time. I yeah. Mean, I, you know, it's, it's, yeah, like you say, it's the first time, first time in my life I'd really been in, like, any kind of eminent danger like sure. that. And, um, <sighs> Which is ironic. You lived in Chicago, and, and boy, <laughs> the south side is rough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... Uh, so you guys run for your lives. Yeah, we're running, and um, you know, it's terrifying because we we weren't really sure who these people were shooting at us, yeah. where they were. It's night; you can't see, and you know, and, and then why are they shooting at you guys? Yeah, yeah, and, and it's one of those things where, like, once the way things worked there, it wasn't like there's like some you know rules of engagement that these people operate by. So once sure. one person starts shooting, everyone just starts shooting, and so. Uh, we finally kind of make our way out, and we get we get to this alley, and we're almost to this like you know once at the end of this alley, there's like a street we can get mm-hmm. to it, and uh, once we get there, there's like cars and people who can help us, and right before we get to that street, these two guys kind of see us running, and there's a bunch of gunfire behind us, and uh, you know they're like ah, you know, I don't know what these guys are up to, and they stand up, and they're these guys in like track suits, and uh, and they've got these AK-47s. And they, you know, point and they, they make us get in the ground. And it's like January in Iraq. So it's like cold, it's this muddy alley. We're face down in this alley. And these guys stand over us. And this guy, this graffiti artist I was with, he'd been arrested multiple times. And he, he later said that, you know, there's something that's very comforting about being arrested in a professional manner. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, these guys did not arrest us in a professional manner. Oh, I, I mean, bet. Yeah, like one one of them starts telling us to get down, and we start to get down, and the other guy's shouting, and you know that we need to get up again. So finally, we're, we're face down in this alley, and I, I was laying like a little bit ahead of this guy Jim that I was with, and uh, he, uh, you know, I hear this, you know, I kind of go to look back and see what's happening, and this guy comes and just puts his boot on my head pushes it down on the ground and then i hear a couple of gunshots right yeah, were you me. thinking at that, that time like all your college buddies are in like cabo or some you know <laughs> it's like some fun bikini fill kind of thing and you got a foot on your head at that point yeah i mean I, my thought was just that you know I, i've come yeah i'm gonna die this is it the in a back alley oh in in baghdad yeah and um you know, and, and so I heard these two gunshots behind me right after they, this guy put his boot on my head, and I thought they had just executed this guy I was with. Oh, no. And, uh, it, you know, they took a couple of seconds to figure out that, that you know, they were just signaling um, to someone. And so it turns out, I mean, long story short, it turns out these were some bank guards that arrested us. They, they thought we were out, like, you know, trying to rob this bank. So they they kind of talk. They're like, all right, no problem, no problem. You know, we're just going to hold you. Uh, make sure the situation's okay for your safety. And like okay no problem and uh you know then a couple minutes turn into a few hours and then they you know then you know we're suddenly locked into a back room and uh you know they start saying that you know we we ask if we're their prisoners and they say no no you're our guest it's okay am i wrong about this because whether it's afghanistan or the middle east they have a different notion of time let's say (laughs) the german or real uptight British banker or whatnot. I mean, they have different like concept of time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's that's so true. Yeah. So they they yeah they they kept us overnight and um and then in the morning Did they, they give you tea at least. Yeah, they gave us some food. They gave some like <laughs> I yeah knew it. yeah yeah. They were nice about it. Yeah. Um, and you know at one point they they we've been in this point we've been in their custody for a few hours and they they, they come in like well we should probably we should probably search you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sure. Go ahead. And so, you know, if you remember this guy that I was with was initially going to go to the Palestine. And, um, you know, so he happened to have in his wallet. Oh, no. Um, uh, I think it was like a hundred shekel note that someone had given him right before he left. A friend had just come back and he's like, hey, I've got this extra currency. Just take it with you. So they find this this money in his, his wallet. And he's like, oh, my God, what are you doing here? An Israeli spy. Um, oh, yeah. And at the time, I also had this giant beard. 
And so they're, they're accusing him of being an Israeli spy. And then they start accusing me of being Al-Qaeda because I have this beard. So it's like this like freakish brotherhood of man operation in their mind, I guess, where like Al-Qaeda and, and you know, Israeli Mossad are working together on some weird operation. How strange is that? Here you are, American, decided to study Arabic because of 9-11, and they're accusing you of being Al-Qaeda. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I sometimes with those conspiracy theories, I just don't know what where they get them. But, but there's a lot in Middle East. Yo, oh my yeah. God, they this love is not them. a joke. There, there is so much, and and, and they're they're trigger happy when it comes to accusing someone of being spying. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so almost everyone. I won't say almost everyone, but there are just countless people that I've met that have accused me of being CIA or Mossad, Mossad, yeah, any number of things, any kind of secret organization. They'll accuse you of being that. But um, yeah, so these guys, you know, so they they, they accuse us of that. And in the morning, they they handed us back over to the uh, police. Okay. And then we we exchanged, you know, we went to a couple of different police stations. No one really wanted us. No one wanted to be responsible for us. And um, so finally, they, they, they dumped us off at this one police station, locked us up in a cell and... uh. You know, they they at one point they came and said, "Oh, we've got a you know we're gonna have a trial for you." I'm like, "Okay, great, great. We'll go see the judge now." And the guy says, "No, no, don't worry. You don't have to come to this trial. We'll just we'll take care of it and we'll let you know what the judge says <laughs> when it's over." Like, Jesus, we'd like to go to our own trial, please. And uh, so finally, I mean, you know, what ended up really saving us is that um, I'd left my passport in the hotel before we went because I thought if we get robbed or something, I, I don't want to lose my passport here. It'd be awful. Um, and so they, the police had really wanted to see it. So I, I say, listen, I'm happy to go back with you to the hotel and get my passport, but I just got to take me back to the hotel. So finally they say, okay, you know, we've got to see this passport, so we've got no choice. It just so happened that there was a, uh, have you ever heard of like the group Clowns Without Borders? It's no. Like, it's, like, it's like Doctors Without Borders, but with clowns. Um, oh, and they come and like entertain children and stuff. Yeah. So this group, it was not clowns without borders, but it was like clowns without borders. Same kind of mandate. They were there, and um, they should have one called porn star without borders. <laughs> oh, be the most popular, <laughs> popular group out there. Um, but so yeah, these clowns were having a big going away party for some, one of the clowns that was leaving early, and it like spilled out into the hallway. I mean, it just sounds so surreal. Oh yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy, and uh, we. We, uh, you know, we walk up and, and the stairs of me and these police officers and we walk into this party. And then, you know, meanwhile, this this uh, guy I was with and, and myself had gone missing. And we, at this point, it's been like two days. And, you know, people have, at this point take a note that we're, we just disappeared. And uh, because kidnapping is still big in Baghdad, it, it hadn't started at that oh, it time. Hasn't. Okay, so they they thought that we, I don't know what they thought that you know, but they they later told us that if if it, they we hadn't shown up in the morning, they were going to go to the embassies and report us as missing. Um, but you know, because these people, you know, because of this party, and you know, uh, they uh, they ended up coming back to the police station with me, and at that point. Um, in Iraq, there was no phones even. We didn't mm. have um, cell phones. There was no cell network. There was no landlines. Um, so we, no one knew where we were. And so the police could really do whatever they wanted. Um, and, and so once these these clowns came back with us, um, it really put the pressure on on the police. And they, they you know, they couldn't, they knew they had to do something. Uh, so the, the next morning we went to the, this kind of court and they uh, they let us go. I mean, this judge just basically said, you know, you guys should have been killed. When, when did you know, because I don't want to get in detail, but we're going to have a, another conversation where similar kind of... Sure. You were thinking like, when did you know like you're okay? Um, I mean, one, once we got to the, the taxi and, and they, they let us go and we got in the taxi and we drove away. Oh, so you had to wait that long before? So even when you were in jail, like you weren't sure what they're going to do with you. Yeah, no, I mean, that was the most stressful part. Like I, I, I didn't know how long we were going to be in there um, or what they were going to try us for. I mean, at one point, they, the, the charges that we heard ranged from like loitering, uh, breaking curfew, which there was no curfew at the time. But they said we broke one. Um, attempted bank robbery. They, they charged us with shooting back at the police. Um, so and then they they were accusing him of being Mossad and me of being Al Qaeda, and so um, any number of those charges were it was terrifying to think that what what could happen if they you know I mean there was 
you know, the Iraqi judicial system or what was left of it at that time, um, who knew what could happen to us? I mean, in this judge who finally like dealt with us in the end said, listen, if this was Saddam's time, you would be That's left in prison to, to rot. Um, you know, you, you are incredibly stupid for having done this. So. Well, if Saddam Hussein was around, no one even tr- even tried to do something like graffiti <laughs> yeah, today. This is I true. Mean, yeah, this is true. Yeah, but I mean, it was it was an interesting um, way to learn about kind of this this mentality that existed in Iraq post Saddam, where you know the the attitude. No one wanted to do anything with us because if they kept us in jail and we were people that shouldn't have been in jail. Um, under Saddam's time, you know, whoever was wrongfully imprisoning us would end up in in jail themselves sure. or, or worse. Uh, or conversely, if we were people that should have been in jail and they let us go, you know, whoever lets us go is going to be in major trouble. So it was kind of this this mentality of it's better to be, you know, kind of just not responsible for anything and just pass the buck than to be the one who's accountable. I see. So, I mean, that was that was a really interesting takeaway from it. So after six weeks... You go back to Mount Jordan and back to Cairo. Mm-hmm. And how much did you stay in Cairo after that? Um, that let's see. That was our winter break. So I stayed for another semester. And then I stayed the summer. And then I went over to, to the West Bank and worked over there. And then, uh, yeah, then went back to college, finished my degree, and then headed back to Iraq again. When, when, when you finally went back to the state after that uh, whole um, trip, and you, obviously you talked to your friends, right? Sure, sure. So what, what did your friends think about the whole thing? You know, uh, it's one of those things I think when... It's a certain type of person who, who's interested in these sorts of stories. Mm. Um, and a lot of my friends, you know, I think they thought it was like crazy or they thought it was cool or whatever they did. But no one... Um, it's, one of, it's been my experience that whenever you travel, and I'm sure that you can relate to this, um, is that you go have these like very, you know... You know, important experiences for you, and these these things that are just so out, outside of of what's ordinary for you yeah. and most Americans. And then you come back, and it's this this huge transformative experience for you. And then no one wants to talk to you about it. Like they want to hear maybe one or two kind of crazy stories, or what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And then and then it's done. It's like, okay, let's go get you know some Dairy Queen or something, and you know, and talk about your relationship that you know with Sally Jane and how it's falling apart. Or, Whatever it is, um, and, and so I, I find that it's it, that's one of the hard parts about coming back is that no one really cares, because it's almost like it's opposite opposite of PTSD. Uh, like, how do you go from that kind of excitement and like, you know, just every day could be like a crazy adventure to back to OC or something? Where sure, I mean, we have drama here, but it's a different kind of drama, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think that... Was, Are you restless when you're here a little bit? Um, You know, I think it's one of the th- reasons I wanted to come back is just to kind of prove to myself that I, I didn't need it mm-hmm. um, to be over there. Uh, you know, because I think when you when you fall into the trap of saying, oh, I'm, I can only be happy if I'm in these crazy situations. And I mean, you know, to be honest, I mean, so much of what you do is just normal desk work over there. It's, sure. You know, anyone who goes to war will tell you that, you know, when they say it's like, you know, 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror, that whatever that expression is. I mean, that's, I find that to be very true. Um, but I guess when you, when you remove the, the possibility that you could have that 1% of, of sheer terror, it does get, it does get slow. But I mean, you know, I think if you, if you get addicted to being in, in that kind of environment, uh, you're not a very balanced or whole person at the end of the day. Um, no. And, and that's, that's what I, I would look at people who were, you know, 10, 20 years older than me and who'd made that their entire lives. And, and so many of them were either dysfunctional people themselves or um, they just had lives that just seemed really unhappy. They'd been divorced multiple times. Um, and really all they had was their work life and there was just no personal life. I don't think it's any different than people serving military or being cop, you know? And yeah. I mean, how do you relate to someone when you come home it's not fair to their wives either, but it's so extreme, you know. Yeah, no, sure. And um, yeah, I'm I'm actually uh, have to go, and this is going to be part one, and I um I, I want to cover more of it. Sure, anytime. And, and, you know, be, uh, whenever it's free again. But I I do want to cover like um so I could listen to this again. So I definitely will get in detail about your experience West Bank, 
I didn't know about that. You went there oh, yeah, yeah. more about Cairo, then uh, then you eventual decisions to go to Afghanistan. Then uh, I'd like to after that I'd like to hear more about you know the politics. Not I don't know. Maybe the politics is not the right word. All the bullshit you have to deal with in your journalism sure, business, sure, you know. Yeah. And then I'm kind of curious what what your um, long term goal and ambition. I'm, I'm like yeah, to hear because yeah. every once in a while somebody will listen to the show. I mean, it's, there's not a lot, but they actually contact the person who I interview and they have question or maybe they have something to offer. You know, sure. But, I don't know what it is about podcasts. It's 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 more personal. I feel they feel like they know you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it's true of what you're writing too. I'm sure you get emails with things you've written yeah, yeah. past, like for whatever reason it, it really registered with them. You know. Sure. And uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you're safe. I'm glad Alex introduced me to you. Likewise, and, yeah. And and Alex, um, I'll, I'll I'll finish with this and we'll come back to this stuff in a couple of days. But when I first met her. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't remember exactly how you met her, but I met her through Sarah Jean, who is who works for Saddam Hussein, who owns Tolo in Kabul, Afghanistan, and Alex was very nice, very attractive young girl. I could tell um, um, she's funny, but she she had this the way she carried herself. She seemed like a fun-loving girl, like interesting, uh, interesting in the world. And we ran out of beer, so she said, "Oh, why don't you just come with my place, which is across the street of where we're at, and come and help me get beers?" And I was really surprised when I met them in Afghanistan. I thought it was going to be dreary. There's no fun, you know. There's not like a fun thing that people do. But sure. within these these high wall places, there's actually community of expats. They deal with the rough uh, subject matter every day, but at nighttime or over the weekends. Yeah, they kind of hang out with other expats and have bring some normalcy to their life, and that yeah. was surprising to me. Yeah, I mean that's that's what I was saying earlier about just I think whether you're an expat or, or a local, you always are going to try to maintain that sense and semblance of a of a normal life wherever you are. So that's you know, and, and that's the thing. I think honestly, that's what I miss the most mm-hmm. about being overseas and being in those places is uh, is having friends like that, and um, you know, you just. There's no community that I found that's like that here in the U.S. Um, you know, it's and that's that's really been the hardest part for me is uh, you know not having friends and being in the community the way that you do in those places. They are just you know I'm way older than them, so when I talk, I'm, I'm just, I was just amazed. You know, this notion like ugly Americans, you know, we are uncouth and rude to people in overseas, but that that's a stereotype too because. Sure. I meet these young people like they graduate from college, they had an option to go into field to make tons of money. They put that shit aside. They decide to go to these places, and you know maybe a little naive, maybe in the beginning, but they're doing some important work. I mean, they're just a really interesting people. Whether they're working for, you know, various major newspaper or health program or security or fighting terrorism and you know intelligence and whatnot and they're they're just really fascinating groups of people and these people don't get enough credit like you're like people like yourself a person like yourself you know and you you're over there and believe me it's 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 dangerous you know i mean any given moment this explosion you're done you know sure and and uh, i i was really that i really do miss that part it was really fun to talk to them because they they're very savvy, they know what's going on, they keep uh, what's going on in the world, and they're very passionate about what they do. And and um, it was very sad both times when I was leaving because I thought they were like great people, you know. Yeah, no, I mean that's the, of all the people that I keep up with. Uh, I mean, I guess most of my adult life has been overseas in those places, but you know, the the closest friends I have are are all from that that you know different places that have lived overseas, you know. I, uh, just it's a special kind of bond you make with with someone. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, you know the closest thing I can compare it to is maybe like being a childhood friend with someone where you've gone through this kind of unique shared experience that sure. was meaningful to you, and and so it's um it's always fun to to be in touch with those kinds of people. And uh, we'll fin- finish the part one right now, but I, I have to, I, I have to tell people what's the advantage of going places like that to me. Anyone could go Hawaii or Rome or Paris. They're wonderful places, don't get me wrong. But it's like investment. When you put money on the risky stock, 
the danger is you might lose all your money, but the upside is huge reward. And it was such a reward. I, mean, I met people that I don't think I ever meet in the regular business there. I come from a blue collar, humble background, you know? So I had no business meeting people like Tom Frist in the, of the world. But when I do meet them, it, it's really fun. Like you almost be, feel like you're part of that little small exclusive club and they just kind of be part of that. And yeah, it's, it's um, if you travel a lot and if you're adventuresome, it's 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 great to go those places and you know and and I love reading your article and I hope people keep following you. Um, you don't work for Christian. Uh, 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 yeah, I was with the Christian Science Monitor, Monitor for a while, but now but you're with Al Jazeera and uh, uh, yeah, freelance. So I do things yeah. for Al Jazeera, sometimes the Monitor still and, yeah. and others. So okay, you know whoever will have me. All right. Well, uh, I'll, I'll meet you hopefully within the next couple of days to a week and do part two. But yeah, I want to know more detail. And then, Tom, thanks for doing it. And uh, um, I will upload the part two soon. Thanks okay. for listening. Bye. Thanks.